but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. We are a bit delayed in bringing this episode to you, and it's because you haven't been feeling that well. <laughs> Effie, please. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, shit happens. Shit happened. And um, w- what can you do? It's been one hell of a year for everyone, so I shan't complain here. And it's, but... not, it's not COVID. It's no, not COVID. no, no, no. But we are here. We are back to recap the World Tour Final. Do they still call it that? The ATP Finals. Um, We're going to talk about some of the other messes ATP men are getting themselves into. PTPA update. A lot of stuff. And mostly male-centric. So no one can say we're misandrist. They'll still say it. Right. I mean, it's not not all of it is positive. It's the ATP we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. That should be their disclaimer under the logo. The ATP just wrapped up its season in London for the final time in the 50th year of its finals. Bookended by Russian winners. The first time that the finals were held in London was won by Davidenko. And this time, Daniil Medvedev won. Oh, I did not even make that connection. You clearly weren't even watching the tennis no. then because that's all they could talk about the I last was, So 2009 was Davidenko, right? Medvedev benefited this year from the ranking system that kept him toward the top. He had incredible results in the second half of, well, really most of 2019, but especially in the late summer into the fall. And because he didn't lose those points, he was able to sail into the... ATP finals because he didn't have an exceptional 2020 up to this point and then at the very end of the year he beats Zverev to win the Paris Masters and he goes five for five here. As per Timani Karyal who was on site for the tour finals at the O2 Arena Medvedev is going to have a ton of points to defend next year at the end of the year because of this wrinkle in the points the way they were frozen and held on to this year. So next year, come Washington, should that schedule happen as we expect it to, as it normally has happened, he's going to have finals points in Washington, finals points in Montreal, winners points in Cincinnati, finals points at the U.S. Open, and then championship points to defend at St. Petersburg, Shanghai, Paris and the ATP finals. Mm-hmm. For the current year, the this ranking system has helped him quite a bit, right? Because it's cushioned him, it's allowed him to ho- hold on to his best points over the past uh what, 22 months, and it prevented any huge drops in the rankings for for a lot of people who played well in 2019. But for next year, because you're still holding on to those best uh 18 tournaments, once you start playing those tournaments, if you don't match it, your points are going to disappear fast. He won all of his matches in London, maximized the number of points he could win. I believe it was 1,500. Won all three of his round-robin matches, 
beat Nadal in the semifinals in three sets and then beat Dominic Team in the final. Last year at the finals, he didn't win a match, and this year he goes five for five. He's one of only four players in history to beat the top three seeds at a tournament to win it. And he's the only person to have done it at the ATP finals. Mm. And he's also won his last seven matches against top ten players. Dating back to Paris. Right. It's it's not nothing. It's quite the achievement that <laughs> Medvedev pulled off to end the season. It sure is. Let's talk about the final first, and then we can discuss the semis in a little bit more detail. The final itself versus between Team and Medvedev, despite being very competitive, was a kind of a, a boring match. It, I don't know if this was just me, but it felt a bit lifeless. Part of that may be there was no crowd, they're indoors, it's the end of a very weird season, and there was just something about the match that didn't light a fire for me. But that's not to say that it wasn't good. I think in the future, we're going to have to get used to not all finals being like big four finals. In, in these huge events, we're so accustomed to at least one member of the big four, sometimes two. And the quality has been so excellent across so many years that this is, this is not normal. Right? I think you're also unenthused by both players in the final. You're unenthused by Medvedev's stalker-like game that is uh, a bit unattractive to watch at, at times. No, I think you're, you're projecting because I actually don't really have a problem with his game. No, I'm saying his game lends itself to boring tennis at times. Sometimes. Like, if you don't have a vested interest in one person winning, if you're not pulling for somebody to win, then it can be a bit of a slog. Right. In this case, it was clear that both players were nervous. At differing times, they were making kind of easy mistakes, which is all to be expected in a big final like this. But uh, I think it's something, it's a version of the ATP that we're going to have to get used to again. You got a 6-4 third set. You got both players playing well enough for good stretches of the match. There's not much more that you can really hope for, <laughs> really. Yeah, yeah. When, when was the last men's match that you really were thrilled by? I, I can't remember yesterday, so... I'm, ju I'm just saying, like, this may be an indictment of your enthusiasm level for men's tennis. Oh, fine, fine. I mean, in the second set tiebreak, team gets to two love and then loses the next seven points. You know, we saw... A bunch of games and tie breaks that went that way at the latter stage of the ATP finals. You saw Medvedev inexplicably lose service games after being 40 love up. Uh, that's how he lost the first set to Nadal. Um, it's just, you know, it's nervousness and it happens. This was a rematch of one of the semifinals at the US Open when Dominic Team beat Daniil Medvedev on his way to winning his first slam title. Medvedev getting the, the revenge this time around. Still, another good result for Dominic Team. It's clear to me that Dominic Team is, is no longer a potential threat. He's a threat to anybody on any surface but grass. Like, it's not just the big three and who could possibly get up there. Dominic Team is not on that same level, but he can beat anybody at any given time. Right. And at this stage, he's actually more accomplished on hard courts than he is on clay. You know, he was expected to be the Prince of Clay. He doesn't have a Masters or a Grand Slam on the surface. 
and he has both on hard court. As per Tamani Carroll, again, he's 5-2 and two versus Djokovic in their last seven matches, 4-3 and three versus Nadal in their last seven matches, and 5-1 and one versus Federer in their last six matches. So if you look at men's tennis through the, the prism of the big three being the be-all, end-all, the apex, he's been doing it against those guys for a while now. He's been able to to do it multiple times in a tournament, and he's got that slam. He is He's firmly entrenched at the top of men's tennis. Had things shaken out a little bit differently, he could have risen to number two after this tournament. Didn't quite shake out. Nadal holds on to the number two ranking heading into 2021. Dominic Team is probably a top three favorite to win a tournament anywhere he goes outside of grass. Yeah. How do we get to that final? So speaking of team, the, the semifinal versus Djokovic was seriously impressive. The The thing that stuck out for me this week for team was the great serving, the accurate serving, and his massive backhand, obviously. He was using the wide serve very consistently on both sides and placing it extremely well, hitting a lot of aces, hitting, you know, routinely 125. And against Djokovic, the backhand pass was just... It was doing a lot, doing a lot of work. And throughout most of that match, Dominic's defense was pretty much as impressive as Djokovic's is, which we, you know, we expect that superior defense from Djokovic. But Dominic was able to stay in these rallies and out-hit him through these rallies. For me, that's been the biggest improvement in team's game, his commitment to defense. Not that he wasn't able to play defense before, but there's a belief in him that nobody can hit through him. And he's able to do anything on the court, going from defense to offense, not having to blast his way out of points, not having to try to end points quickly in these high-pressure situations. He has more control over his power as well. His inside-out forehand remains one of the biggest weapons in the game. But what you saw against Djokovic was somebody who had put in a lot of work and that work had paid off physically to be able to hang with Djokovic come what may. What was remarkable to me is that in the second set tiebreak, he is a bit nervous. He has four match points, loses all of them. At that point, you expect Djokovic to make a very, very hard charge for this match. I was anticipating that Djokovic would somehow scrape it out. And we get to the third set tiebreak. Dominic opens with a double fault. Okay. Then he goes down love four. And at that point, I'm sure people turned off the TV. They got up and made a cup of coffee or whatever. Somehow, he wins that tiebreaker and the match. And I still don't know how he did it. And it, I mean, an incredible backhand cross-court winner to earn match point on Djokovic's serve. Like... He can be reliant on his big weapons in these big moments, even after something that could have been mentally crushing. In that second semifinal where Daniel Medvedev beats Nadal, you see the beginnings of what the strategy is to beat Medvedev at this tournament because team deployed the same tactic in the final. Both players, both Nadal and team, utilize the backhand slice a lot. (laughs) And the word on the street is... Medvedev is not comfortable or cannot generate as much pace on his own, and he's reliant on redirecting with pace 
coming toward him from the other side of the of the net. Both players tried that. It worked to varying degrees. What you saw from Medvedev is that he is uh, very smart on court. He was able to troubleshoot his way out of many situations. He brought it to Nadal when Nadal served for the match in that second set. Nadal being up in a up a set and a break serving for the match in the semifinal, and Medvedev breaks to love. Part Nadal having a bit of a letdown, but Medvedev brought it to him. It's also not often that you see Nadal lose a match from that position. No, indeed. The slice backhand thing began to to become funny for a few reasons. One, because the commentators would not stop talking about it. Because, especially with Dominic, it's unusual to see him hit so many slices in a match. It was incessant. And going back to the final, I think that might be part of why I felt like the match was just felt a little weird. Because it was like, oh my god, so many slice backhands. So many long, protracted rallies where not much was happening. Until it did, right? But see, I find that interesting. There was one particular point against Medvedev where Nadal deployed the backhand slice up the line, cross court, up the line, up the middle of the court. And it felt like you're just playing catch with the dog in the backyard. And then boom, Nadal unleashes the backhand winner up the line. I found that titillating. Is that the right word? Uh, Does that word not connote excitement? I I guess. Yeah, maybe not the... Well, maybe it is the right excitement you're getting at. It wasn't a sexual thing, if that's what... It doesn't have to mean sexual. Oh, okay. That's like a very Agassiz point, right? Staying in the point, just working on it, hitting back in the same place until you find that fraction that we probably can't even perceive on TV where you can squeeze a winner in there. That is, that is exciting. But a lot of those points were successful in eliciting the error from Medvedev. And that's, you know, that's why they were employing the backhand slice so often until it didn't which is why i say that he showed a lot of smarts on court because it was something that he dealt with in the semifinal against nadal he was faced with and troubled by it in the final to a point and then you you got to see that he kind of worked things out for himself Mm -hmm. you had you had a optimism during that whole week that this would have been the year for nadal to win this tournament right and I, I felt it was still a long shot, but if there were any year for Rafa to finally come through and win the finals, this was it. Djokovic is superior on the surface indoors, but there, uh, the, like, there seems to be something a little bit off about him lately. It's just maybe that he's not at his pinnacle right now. Which is to say that even if Nadal had progressed to face Djokovic, they would have been on opposite sides of the draw come the semifinal round, if they had met in the final, you got the sense that while under normal circumstances, Djokovic would be the heavy favorite on the surface, Nadal even stood a chance against Djokovic at this tournament. Mm -hmm. And I saw someone describe him, uh, describe Djokovic as woozy in that match against team. And I felt, I don't remember who said it, but I felt it was such a great word because it wasn't that Djokovic was playing poorly or that he wasn't invested, but you do get these matches from him sometimes where through a lot of it, he just uh, seems to be, it's just not clicking. And because he's such a great competitor, he can stay in it. And most of the time he's able to to figure it out at the end. And in that match, he just wasn't. But after Djokovic lost, 
of course I was thinking, this is certainly not a sure thing, but this is a great chance for Rafa to win this tournament finally. That was not to be. Medvedev was too strong. That semi was a little strange because toward the end Rafa seemed... I don't want to use any excuses for him, but he seemed tired. He seemed possibly a little disengaged. Like he wasn't going for shots that you expected him to. Right, but by that point that you're talking about, Medvedev was already well in the lead. It would have taken an even bigger effort for him right. to he come was, back and win that He match. was down a break at that point. He eventually went down two breaks in that third set. The momentum of that match was strange because if you watch the first set up until when Nadal breaks to then serve out the first set, Medvedev looked to be in somewhat control of most of the points. In that first set, I believe Nadal only won 41% of his first serve points. Medvedev had won more points on serve than Nadal in that first set. Mm -hmm. Though Rafa's first serve percentage was awful. When and he did get it in, he won like 86% of them, but the, the first serve percentage was not good. And so on paper, and also from what you're seeing on the TV, that first set felt like Medvedev had had the better of it. But Nadal somehow wins it, and then he's serving for the match in the second set. And at that point, you're like, well, wow, it looks like Nadal is in complete control. But the, the truth of the, of the matter from actually watching the match should have told you otherwise. Mm. Anyway, Medvedev is a back-to-back -back winner in the ATP Tour. Paris, now the year in finals. He's got all those points to defend next year. Both he and team have all the momentum that they want heading into 2021, wherever and whenever that begins. And Nadal himself had a cute season. Won number 20, number 13 at the French Open, won in Acapulco, never lost before the quarterfinals of any tournament, was able to stay relatively fresh, I should assume, given that he only played seven tournaments. And given everything that he and the rest of the tour had dealt with, it shouldn't be too prohibitive for him what he dealt with in 2020 to then come back fresh again in 2021. So we'll talk about this more in our year-end wrap. We can talk about you know who, who the options are for players of the year. But next season, it's, it's going to be weird, right? Tournaments are going to come off the schedule. They're going to come off and come back on the schedule probably at different times. Some tournaments may disappear forever, unfortunately, if they're not able to go on again. You know, some nations will get the vaccine before others. Uh, but it's so difficult and silly to make predictions for the coming season. See, I was just doing a little bit of a, a segue into Linz. Mm. Oh, and, and you I just ruined your to, segue? It's not even that it was ruined. It was just unnecessarily added on to. Mm. <laughs> there I go being an asshole again. Mm -hmm. I shall refrain. A bully. Well, you wanted to talk about Linz. No, well, it's you were supposed to take the bait and then talk about Linz. Okay. So. so after Roland Garros, WTA only had two more tournaments on the schedule. Their entire Asian swing was canceled, and they could not scramble in time to get more events on the calendar. They had a loaded field in Ostrava, Czech Republic, and the final tournament was in Linz, Austria. Sabalenka wins both of them. She uh, traditionally has... Uh, an excellent late season. She's great indoors. She seems to love to play in October and sometimes into November. She has eight titles now in her career. Five of those have been in the fall. September, October, November. I just told you the fall months. That was unnecessary. <laughs> so in Linz this year, she beat Mertens for the title. 
helps her squeeze back into the top 10. She's at number 10 and knocks out Serena, who's now sitting at number 11. Sabalenka recently split with Dmitry Terzinov earlier this year. She came back after the pandemic break, working with Dieter Kindleman for a very, very short time. And now she's working with her former hitting partner, Anton Dubrov. And she's said in interviews a few times that it was super important for her to be able to win these tournaments without Dimitri to prove to herself that she had made the right decision because it was her decision to part with him. They've also had a stop and start, stop and start, stop and start relationship. Mm-hmm. They've broken up and gotten back together professionally many times in the past. Right. And they clearly have a, a very close and complex personal relationship as well, which we've seen <laughs> laid bare. Not implying anything. It sounded like you were implying no, something. That they're they're clearly friends, like they're close. Um, so it must have been a difficult decision for her to say, "Hey, I I want to go in a different direction." Dimitri did an interview uh, on another podcast saying that Arena told him, "I don't feel you have a lot more to give to me right now," and it maybe didn't come out that harshly, but that that was kind of the gist of it. If only. Um... A lot of folks in in relationships that aren't working could come to that realization. Like, hey, you don't have a lot to give to me anymore. Bye. See ya. (laughs) I think that's that's a wrap on our our, uh, tennis portion of the episode. There's been a lot of discussion about what is happening with the Australian Open. Well, the first thing that we heard... Nope, that's not the first either. (laughs) (laughs) The other first thing we heard was that the players were going to be getting down to Australia by, say, mid-December, and then quarantining for two weeks before then heading out to do some kind of bubble work Mm. to then be able to play tournaments. And then we heard that, okay, the the tournament, the Brisbane is not going to be held. They're going to play in Melbourne leading up to the Australian Open. And then we heard the Australian government was not going to allow any international arrivals until the new year. So that initial plan of getting the players in before Christmas and quarantining them, that had to be scrapped. That then brought into question, how is the Australian Open going to start on time? If the players get there, say, the first week of January, then they have to quarantine for two weeks. There's no chance that you have a warm-up tournament. At most, you'll be able to get a few high-intensity practices a couple days before the tournament starts. So then it becomes a question of, well... The Australian Open probably needs to delay the start of the tournament. We then heard rumors that it was going to be in March, maybe April. And then folks are like, that makes no sense because you're impinging on the North American hardcourt swing, the Indian Wells, the Miami. Should they even happen? We potentially get ourselves into another situation where the French Open plops itself into the fall schedule, does what it wants, and there's no cooperation between tournaments. That's something to keep an eye on for 2021 where tournaments try and relocate themselves Mm. to try and stay afloat. Now we get the official word that the tournament's going to be delayed by, what, two weeks? Well, the thing is, it's still not even official. We're close, closer than we've been. The Age reported uh, today that the most likely scenario is that the tournament will start on February 1st. The qualifiers will start the week prior. Players will travel between January 5th and 7th. And then they will have to start their mandatory 14-day quarantine. Now, this has not been officially approved by the Victoria government, so it's still not 
completely certain that the tournament will go ahead. And what's still unclear is whether or not players will be allowed to practice during the 14-day quarantine. This is obviously very important for a tennis tournament that players are allowed to train before the beginning of the tournament. There will be a gap in between the end of your quarantine and the start of the tournament if it goes ahead like this. But the Victoria government still hasn't said yes. And for a while, they were being pretty firm that no, quarantine means quarantine like in your hotel. We don't want you to practice. So it wouldn't be like a US Open situation where you come to the bubble. This would be a genuine quarantine, a genuine bubble, because Australia has controlled this pandemic so incredibly well, more than most countries, that they really can't risk bringing in all these people from all over the world and messing it up. Novak was asked about this in London, and while he said that he didn't really know what was going on per se, he wasn't up to speed on it, he did posit that perhaps they could be allowed to practice during week two of quarantine. Nadal as well was asked about it in London. His words, we are nobody to say what they feel is better for their country, no. We just need to be patient and accept the situation that we are facing. Once again, Nadal has been spot on with situating tennis's importance against COVID-19. Right, it's, I mean, so many players, not just Novak, have been consistently, insistently self-interested in the way that they answer these questions about the pandemic. And uh, Nadal, you know, he has the privilege to not play, of course. He he has the, the career, he has the money, whatever. He doesn't have to play if he doesn't want to. I understand that that's different. But there are other top players who are in a similar situation who have been so continually wrong and selfish in the way that they approach tennis during a pandemic. Mm-hmm. It's not to say that Nadal has put every foot right. You can make the argument that right. why were you in Paris in the first place in the fall mm. as the the virus raged to its highest peaks. Sure. But while he was there and winning, he was constantly speaking about the emotional toll that the pandemic had taken on not just his family, but everybody in the world and mindful of the suffering and putting tennis in the proper perspective. And we've we've said before, and and you've echoed. Um, I can't remember who said it that sport is a a reward for a functioning society. Sean Doolittle from the Washington Nationals, mm. and it's complicated because tennis is a career for a lot of people. A lot of people depend on it for an income, and for people who are not ranked, say in the top one hundred, that career is precarious. Their income you know, breaking even in a normal year is difficult. This is a problem for the leaders of the sport. Unfortunately, the leaders have to reckon with keeping people safe in uh, a pandemic like we haven't seen in our lifetimes, keeping community members who have nothing to do with tennis safe, uh, abiding by different countries' laws, but they also need to find a way to support their players. And these You know, the ATP and the WTA aren't leagues per se, they're associations, but there has got to be a way to support lower ranked players and not endanger people in the process. The fact that we had the US Open go off and the French Open go off does not mean that the Australian Open should be played. Right. That we've had tennis tournaments happen in the last four months, three to three months. I don't know what dare of the week it is anymore. 
The fact that tennis has restarted doesn't mean that it was the right decision to make. That one of the slams could have gone off without serious spread of the virus doesn't mean that they weren't lucky in that happening. Mm -hmm. And so for a government like Australia that has been so serious about dealing with the pandemic and, and their citizens have suffered, made the sacrifices that so many in countries where tennis players come from did not and still refuse to, mm-hmm. they have earned the right to do whatever it is that they feel is necessary to keep their good standing with Miss Corona in place. Right. I mean, Australian people were in a serious lockdown, much more severe than what we've had in Canada or the U.S. At the same time, while tennis players in Europe were hosting super spreader events, as if nothing was going on. So, first of all, the people of Australia uh, are probably wise not to trust the tennis establishment to do right by them. Not just the establishment, but then even if the establishment puts protocols into place, that the players will abide by them. Right, because we've, I mean, a theme of this pandemic is that we are so dependent on each other to act responsibly. Even if all the rules are in place, you still have to depend on people to feel responsibility for others. And you could easily foresee a situation where tennis players come into a Melbourne with a Cavalier lax attitude because they've, well, I've been through the bubble before. Or I've had it already. Yeah, I've had it already. I've been through the bubble before. When in fact, you've been through a bubble with many holes. Bubbles that (laughs) were not ideal. And now you're getting to a situation where you may be facing an actual bubble. How are you going to deal with that? Instead of a bubble, I see it as kind of a wiffle ball. You know, like one of those plastic balls with all the holes in it. So we shall see what the Victoria government rules on the Australian Open. Right now, it seems that everybody expects it to happen on February 1st. We listened to two podcasts ahead of recording, which is not something that we typically do. I certainly don't listen to podcasts. (laughs) No, I... Generally, unless it's like fact-finding, I don't want to run the risk of repeating something I heard on someone else's show. or. You but know. also, I I don't enjoy the medium necessarily, even oh, though wow. I have a podcast. It's, I love podcasts. It's one of the great, I guess... Ironies? You could say that, or you could say fucked-upnesses of mm. myself. <laughs> well, you know, I love to bake, but I actually don't eat a lot of what I bake. It's the same kind of thing. Oh, Okay. You are charged with listening to Vashik Pospisil on Tennis.com, where he talks about the PTPA, and I had to sit through Justin Gimmelstab on Rock and Rally? Rock and Roll Podcast? What is that thing called? The Rock and Roll Podcast with Keith Fraser and John Lloyd. Yes, John Ever Lloyd. You, um, can, you can decide for yourselves, you the listeners, which was the greater task, the greater ask. <laughs> I, I certainly have my I opinions I definitely, about it. I lucked out in, in that scenario. Vashex was a lot shorter and a lot less contentious. The PTPA, it is still a thing. There were some reports this week, I think they originated with Simon Briggs, that Novak and Vashek had both been nominated for a Players' Council seat in the upcoming elections. And uh, initially it was like, oh, they're running for player council, but they were actually just nominated by their fellow players. And for a few days, it was sort of up in the air about what was to happen. The ATP swiftly instituted a rule that prohibited members of the PTPA from sitting on the players council. As to why this should cause any consternation, I don't know, because... 
it is one of the clearest conflicts of interest that one could ever perceive. Mm-hmm. So, so we'll actually get to that. The, the PTPA, and Djokovic especially, originally said that the Players' Council is essentially toothless. This existing structure in the ATP simply does not work, and we don't believe in it. So his, uh, his willingness to kind of run for another seat, or, you know, had he won the election, he said he would voluntarily go and sit on the Players' Council again. That struck me as strange because he, he said very clearly that he doesn't believe in the body as it is today. Now, I understand, you know, wanting a seat at the table, but... But also from the ATP's perspective, you clearly view the PTPA as a threat. And within that operating business structure, it's like you're letting the enemy into your backyard. And I'm not, I'm not saying they're right, but like that the ATP is acting honorably. But any company is not going to gladly let someone sit on this breakaway association, which they have refused to recognize, and their own body that they have set up within the organization that they feel fulfills the same purpose. Mm-hmm. The, the ATB's official position is that the Players' Council is the appropriate body to make these decisions. And so, if the PTPA is a separate thing that's not being recognized by the ATP Tour, how then do you allow someone like, say, Vashek to do both? To then have access and to be privy to internal discussions with what's actually going on with the intent of the ATP Tour when they're actively trying to keep that separation from the PTPA. It's it makes sense to me. Right. Now if the PTPA were a union, the ATP would have to they would be compelled to recognize it legally and they would have collective bargaining rights and they would be compelled to sit at the table with this organization and bargain and discuss. It's not a union, so any company is going to fight it. Like there are very few companies who are just going to be like, "Yeah, come on board, whatever." Um, Now, I'm not saying that the ATP is doing the right thing for all the right reasons, but that's the reality. It should be no surprise that they wouldn't allow Novak and Vashek to sit on the Players' Council because they were essentially forced to resign when they broke away and formed the PTPA. So now that we've gotten that out of the way, what is Vashek saying? Mm -hmm. Vashek talked a little bit about where the PTPA is now versus where they were during the U.S. Open, and... You know, it's still a bit unclear. Clearly, that was kind of the registration drive. They were drumming up interest, getting signatures. They're still very early in the planning stages. This is the infancy. So they are thinking about making new hires, hiring lawyers and other sort of management type roles into the association. I don't, it's unclear like exactly where the funding is coming from. I guess, are there, are there dues that the players have to pay? I'm not sure. But he did outline a few of the things that the PTPA is working toward. So they have this kind of vague goal of uniting the players, becoming a unified voice, soliciting player opinions, and having this formidable body to take it to the ATP and the WTA in a way that it's unclear exactly how that will be communicated to the associations so far, but that's the idea. And he, you know, he picked on some specific bugaboos of tennis, some, some things about tennis that are unique to this sport, the conflicts of interest, like you said. He's looking for transparency from tournament directors. Players want to see the P&L statements. 
They want to see ticket sales. They want to under, sorry, profits and losses. They want to see how much revenue tournaments are making and what percentage of that is being doled out to players. And clearly, the players have excellent points, right? They have good reason to be mad about the lack of transparency on both tours. At this point, I'm sort of just, I'm interested. I'm interested to see what happens. If they have advisors who know what they're doing, if their voice is strong enough to actually make a, a real difference in the tennis governing bodies. And he said in the formation of the PTPA, one of their key goals is to avoid conflicts of interest and also expose the conflicts that are rife within the ATP and other governing bodies in tennis. So the idea that the ATP won't let them serve on the Players' Council because it's a conflict, that's one thing. But he said, what about all the other myriad conflicts that go unabated in the ATP? What about their support for Justin Gimmelstab while he was on the ATP board while wearing so many other hats within tennis? Right. Was that a conflict of interest that was acceptable or one that needed to be brought to light? This is going to be a situation where we see the full extent to how tennis is entangled. Mm -hmm. And it'll be interesting because the the co-presidents of the PTPA were advocates for Justin Gimmelstab. It'll be interesting to me if they turn that critical eye on the people who have advocated beside them. You know, because Gimmelstab, of course, is one of the emblems of conflicts of interest who was who was protected for a long time. But, you know, you have representatives of IMG may, helping make decisions for the ATP. And clearly, conflicts abound in this sport to an embarrassing level. You have tournament directors that have their hands in so many other different pockets. Yeah, so as far as the, the news about the PTPA is, they... They are still around, they are kind of in the planning stages, and they plan to be uh, a body and a voice for players. How, how that happens, we don't yet know. You have here noted that he also claimed that Sloan and Madison got close to 80 of the top 100 women to sign up for the PTPA. Yeah, so that's interesting, because this has mostly been framed in opposition to the ATP. Now, we don't know how this has affected the WTA Players' Council, for example, we haven't had really official statements from WTA leadership about this organization because it's been unclear kind of where women stood because the at least the initial drive was mostly men. Will the PTPA push for the tennis organizations to adopt domestic violence policies? Is that something that's going to be of interest? Mm. Well, I mean, will will this body have co-presidents who are one man and one woman, for example. You know, right now there are two men at the top. And I guess it makes sense to them, these are the two men who made it happen. They're, they're going to be leaders. But in the future, is this body going to represent men's and women's tennis interests equally? Because they are different. Many, many men on this body will not support equal pay. So again, I, th I think where we're at is um, interest is peaked and uh, a, a little dose of skepticism is warranted. If you had thought that the PTPA had fallen by the wayside, that's not the case. Right. Because that was one of the questions when this news kind of semi-broke that Djokovic and Pospisil were trying to get back on the Players' Council. People were like, well, what happened to the PTPA? Right, right. Are they abandoning it? Have they seen the light? Have they realized that they don't have enough support from the players? Vashek has answered a lot of those questions. 
And it seems that there's a whole lot of work that's being done behind the scenes that we are not privy to, that will continue to happen, and it will continue to be something that we'll look at and be on the lookout for in 2021. Our last episode was all about the domestic violence allegations against Alexander Zverev, and we said what we said. The, our position was pretty clear at that point, and some more stuff has happened in the, in the, in the interim. I do want to say that we didn't come to recording that episode without having given it a lot of thought and without having seen a lot of the things that are being said out there in defense of Zverev. So by coming into our mentions and telling us and regurgitating those things, you are not bringing us anything new. It is not changing our opinion, nor is it a discussion that we're willing to have, quite frankly. Fair. Yeah, fair. I think the day after we released our episode, the ATP finally released their statement. And they made it clear that they were not going to engage directly. They did say, quote, we condemn any form of violence or abuse, which is a lot more than most people have said when asked about the situation. Their full statement, quote, the ATP fully condemns any form of violence or abuse. We expect all members of the tour to do the same and to refrain from any conduct that is violent, abusive, or puts others at risk. In circumstances where allegations of violence or abuse are made against any member of the tour, legal authorities investigate and due process is applied. We then review the outcome and decide the appropriate course of action. Otherwise, we are unable to comment further on specific allegations. So they're in effect saying, unless allegations are made that are pursued legally, and until those cases are decided by the appropriate legal authorities, we have nothing to say. Mm. You could not take a more hands-off approach than this. Right, because even further than that, what is implied is we will not act until there is a conviction. Mm -hmm. Because Basilashvili is currently in court. Uh, He'll be going back early December for his domestic violence case. And the ATP has not lifted a finger on that, as we know. You know, he's already been indicted for a crime. He has not been convicted. So if he is convicted, we will see if and what the ATP does. But why this falls short? We made the argument that this is incongruent with other professional sporting leagues across the globe, most specifically North America. I suppose you could make that distinction. Where it falls short is that we know that acquittals happen in domestic violence cases for myriad reasons. We know that cases aren't brought before judges, before juries, for myriad reasons. Mm -hmm. We delineated those on the last episode. And you also have, you have two different people here who are not citizens of the country where the alleged crimes happened. They don't live in that country. Where would they file their suit? How would they file their suit? Um, You know, the barriers for survivors to actually press charges are myriad. And also, prosecutors can simply refuse to prosecute a case, even if the victim would like to press charges. Mm. Just as though you come at us with innocent until proven guilty, as well as due process, let's see how this all plays out in a court. You've clearly watched a lot of TV. (laughs) And because you've watched a lot of TV, you should also know that many times 
there is credible evidence, there is credible accusations, there is a victim willing to press charges, but as you said, the district attorney, the person in charge of bringing those charges, decides that they cannot get a conviction. Right. Does, and does that mean that due process has been applied? I don't know. Under the law, that, that means uh, everything has been working properly, right? That, that's how it's supposed to work. And that presumes that the various legal systems, be them in America or in Georgia, where Basilis really is right now, wherever these charges are, are placed, that assumes that those legal systems are equipped and willing to deal with these allegations of domestic violence in a serious way. Mm. So not to let the other leagues off the hook, because the NFL, for example, only came to this domestic violence policy after messing it up so badly for so long, and it was within the last decade. But at this point, I would think the ATP has uh, a business reason to to get their HR team together and at least put a policy on paper. To get their what? You think the ATP has an HR team? <laughs> don't they? Do well, they? I mean, they employ some people. The, the players, they don't employ, but obviously they have people. We have somebody have who signs checks, who pays people. But what is the full extent of their HR team? I don't I know. Certainly... I'm just saying there is there is a business interest in handling these things better. Not only, not only a human interest for both the accused and the accuser, but there is a business interest for appearing in public that you have your shit together if you're the ATP. No, because like we said on the last episode, they're banking on their niche status protecting them. Right, right. The more they take themselves seriously as a business, as a league, the more they then have to step outside of that. Mm. So a teammate has hired a PR person to handle the Zverev case. Team 8 being? The sporting agency that represents Zverev, which was co-founded by Tony Gotzik and Roger Federer. This person is Bella Onda, who is the former spokesperson for the German government. Uh, not off to a great start. This is a hat tip to at Drive Volleys on Twitter, who found uh, some unfortunate likes and an interaction between the PR person, Bella Onda, and a troll who was calling Ben Rothenberg a, quote, soy boy hmm. for the way he's been covering this issue. I, d- just a sidebar here, I simply cannot keep up with all the emasculating pejoratives applied to men. Like, soy boy, what, what are, I'm still what, back with alpha it, beta. What does it I don't, mean? I don't know what it means. Um, but, man, there is, you could fill a dictionary with the emasculating words used for men who show... I don't know, like humanity toward women? In this case, Ben was the one who did refer to Zverev's game as beta. Do you remember yes, that? Yes, not innocent, right? I mean, we've, we took him to task. We've been through all that, but... Not to say that I believe that there's some uh, socially aware wordplay here. Like this was intentionally done in retribution to that incident. Right. That's not what I think is No, no. It's, it's strange to see a PR person identified by his real name on Twitter interacting in such kind of a, a lowbrow way with trolls. Recently, Zverev made another statement. He read a statement off of his phone. And let me tell you, the BBC was extremely shady in the way they filmed that because for part of it, they were filming him straight on. And then the camera zoomed in to his profile onto his phone so we could all see that he was reading off of it. That's journalism. 
And honestly, there's actually no problem with reading a statement off your phone if, if you simply want to get it right. And if English is not your first language, the problem is that the statement sucked, <laughs> right? That's it. <laughs> the issue was not the phone. I imagine that the statement was co-written or completely written by his management team. And it was more of the same. It was more of, you know, reiterating that the allegations are completely untrue. That's not how our relationship was. And I'm just sad for me and my family. So no, it's even more firmly entrenched as a he said, she said. Mm -hmm. And by this time... And that's clearly the strategy. By this time, you are clearly on one side or the other. The people who are out here saying, oh, well, we really don't know what happened. That's... That's... Okay. I don't even know what you're saying there because... Mm. All you're doing is keep, it's like you're trying to keep the allegations at bay. You're acting as a buffer, as another layer of protection for Zverev. Mm. How these folks take it upon themselves to be personal defenders of Zverev is beyond me. This account showed up in my mentions on Twitter yesterday that was created for the sole purpose of defending Zverev. Mm. Every single tweet, all 30-something of them, was finding various tweets that were not favorable towards Verve with this issue and repeating the same talking points. It was like a Russian bot on Twitter mm. defending yeah. Trump. The, the Trumpian nature of this issue and the way it's played out is quite alarming. I mean, that's our, our cultural lexicon right right now. Like, that's that's how we argue issues, right? And for a lot of those people, it's not about Zverev per se. It's about a world changing and they perceive the world changing in such a way that any man is vulnerable at any moment to have their life ruined by fake accusations. We know people. We know older generations where you see that this is how they may have behaved in a certain way back in their day. Or, you know, they they were too touchy. They wanted to kiss everybody on the cheek or whatever or the way they would interact with waitresses kind of thing Mm -hmm. societies adapt cultures change that's the way it is like if that older person cannot be in public today without being inappropriate to a waitress they get to stay home and be lucky that they don't have charges at their feet that's just the way it is right and that doesn't mean that we are in a bad place when people say oh you know this we're living in too pc a culture I, I miss the days when so on. So what you're saying is you miss the days when you could be more openly offensive to people mm. without being called on it. When your behaviors didn't have to be checked as much. When your privilege didn't have to be checked as much. And so what we're asking of people in this day and age, with the varying movements that we've seen in the last 10 years, is to be okay or accept that you're going to be uncomfortable. Right. You're going to have to to think about the ways your behavior affects other people the way the way you think about things impacts other people and that is how society progresses and this is i mean this is reversing millennia of pure acceptance of women being raped and beaten within relationships and out of relationships that was uh, an expectation in most societies across the world for centuries millennia when you see a cultural shift like this so quickly and so profoundly, it's going to be uncomfortable. And I don't, I don't know that we have the laws and the language yet to even conceive of how much we can change. This idea of trial by social media, 
That's another diversion. We've seen time and again that folks who are quote-unquote imperiled on social media do not actually have tangible physical losses. Mm -hmm. Their ego and their reputation may be hit for a little bit, but Dr. Luke is out here under another name with a Grammy nomination. Right. You say, I mean, Bill Cosby is in jail because 50, 50 women After came forward decade and it took 30 upon years. Decade right? upon decade of allegations and, and folks propped up America's dad saying he couldn't do that mm. because this fictional depiction of who Bill Cosby was made you believe that this man could not do those things. And so we need to let go of this idea that we know people. We know who they are. We don't know who Alexander Zverev is. And we also, we don't, we don't owe him blind loyalty because we don't know him personally, right? He's not my friend. I also want to point you to Courtney Nguyen on her last appearance on NCR, where she skillfully debunked this whole idea of innocent until proven guilty from a legal perspective. Because what we want folks to, to grapple with and to own up to is that you're really just saying you don't believe Olya. And if that's the case, that's the case. Right. As she says on that show, once you get to that point, then we can have another discussion. But in the meantime, like we've said, you're just muddying waters. And the, the net effect, the only effect, is to, to cloak Zverev in added bundles of defense that he already has built into the system by the patriarchy. Mm -hmm. I wonder about this, actually, if let's say she went to court with no, she didn't produce any more evidence than what she's produced so far. And if a court says that he is guilty, then, then you believe it? Like, not everybody. Right. Then but, people will be like, well, I am my own personal detective, no, lawyer, trial and jury. Let's, let's come to that, actually. I want to skip ahead for a moment because Milos Raonic was on blast very lightly this week. Because his agent, Amit Nauer, was dismissed from the creative arts agency, CAA, after being investigated internally for sexual harassment. And he was fired by CAA when they found that the accusations were valid, that they were well-founded. Milos said, quote, some people are leaning a little too much on, let's say, this cancel culture nowadays. And so here you have a situation where you know, there wasn't a legal process, but there was an internal investigation. There was some sort of due process involved. He was found to be guilty of those accusations, fired, but that's not enough. It's not enough, right? So to, to even criticize that person, that's cancel culture. It's never going to be enough. R right. Because even we've seen to this day that Chris Brown has his defenders. I mean, and he's still a successful artist, yeah. right? Novak Djokovic tweeted at Alex Zverev after beating him in the round robin in London, quote, always a pleasure sharing the court with you, Sasha. Great ending of the season for you. Best wishes and what awaits you on and off the court. Stay strong. Happy to qualify for semifinals in the last year of ATP finals here in O2. Stay strong. Now that was posted also on Instagram and on a fleet in case you didn't get the stay strong. This happened after... Djokovic had already been asked about this in press. So he left the press room, knowing that that was already on the record. So he then goes and posts that on social media. But what he did say in press, the question was, have you spoken to Sasha to get his side of the story? Do you feel that he's treated differently in the locker room now since the allegations became public? 
He dealt with the second question first, saying that no, there's been no difference in how he's been treated. He said that we got to spend time together during the Adria tour, privately as well. Talked about a lot of different things in life. So it was very nice to go kind of in depth with him and really get closer and get more personal than just, you know, kind of the common themes and subjects and conversations that we get to have on the tour. To your first question, I have not talked with him about that specific case. You know, I did tell him that I'm here if he needs to talk. Of course, he's got, you know, big family and a team of people around him. He's been handling it well by the looks of his results in the last month and a half or so. He's been doing well considering he's got a lot on his plate off the court. So I sincerely wish for him that he overcomes this soon and that he can focus on his life and tennis career. Again, we have this false equivalency between getting over something and doing well on the tennis court. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could hardly be more clear if he said he didn't do it, right? It's framed as something he needs to overcome, that he has faced a hardship in being accused of something he obviously didn't do. And I hope that he's able to overcome this. We saw it being framed like that on our last episode with the Prime video segment. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, you know, and it's not only Djokovic, right? He's the number one player in the world. He was asked about it. He has a very important voice in the sport. So he will be singled out for anyone who's upset about that. But you, I think we need to understand that men will always protect men. And when men do not protect other men, that's an exception to the rule. And that should be uh, noticed. To then say on social media, stay strong. Why? Why? Why do you need to do that? That is completely superfluous. You said you haven't talked to him. It's likely you haven't read about the whole situation. You have maybe have not read Olya's story. What is this serving other than to show that you, the number one player in the world, one of the players with the biggest voices, the most important voices in the sport, you are adding, in effect, a layer of blind support to Alexander Zverev. And you may be tempted to think that that's innocuous, that what's the big deal? But this is where the power dynamics come into play, where you can see clear as day that the power dynamics between Olya and Sasha are completely unequal. Mm-hmm. We keep hearing, let's see how this plays out, etc., etc. But in the meantime, Djokovic, the world number one and one of the most powerful men in the sport, is telling the accused to stay strong. Who is out here able to speak for Olya Sharapova with that kind of weight behind them? Nobody. There's nobody. Right. If you are not feeling the most upbeat after listening to that latest Zverev segment, I don't know what to tell you. Prepare it's not, to get It's less. not getting any better because I listened to Justin Gimmelstab on this rock and roll podcast with Keith Fraser and John Lloyd, formerly John Everett Lloyd. No, I was being facetious. <laughs> And the little blurb introducing this podcast is Justin Gimmelstab joins us this week. This is the man who was tipped to run the ATP a few years back, a man who is best equipped to enhance the game for the better. Bright, multi-talented, and hugely passionate about the game, how it's run, and the treatment of its players. For the first time in a long while, Justin finally speaks, and when he talks, you have to listen. Um, do you remember the Seinfeld episode, the yada yada? I know you don't watch Seinfeld, so you don't. But in between, he was tipped to run the ATP a few years back and the rest. There's there's a silence that's doing a lot of heavy lifting. There's a lot of stuff that was yada yada Why is he no longer tipped 
to run the ATP. This entire, oh. <laughs> entire hour and 20 minutes just made Justin Gimmelstab look like a saint. If you had no context for what happened with Justin Gimmelstab, what he did, what he was alleged to do, you would listen to this and think, well, the ATP is missing out. Somebody right. needs to give but this like, man a job. This, this is, is the smart. hardest working man in the history of tennis. He is, I mean, the business acumen just jumps out. Like, how are we not making the most of this guy's many talents? The, <laughs> Keith ends the episode by saying he's a loss to the game and he cannot stop talking about his intelligence. John Lloyd says the gift that he's given the game, he's got to come back. When the time is right, he's got to come back because he's too big a loss to tennis. There's no mention as to why he's no longer working in tennis. Mm-hmm. And this is part of a sequence of appearances that, that Justin Gimmelstab has made. We saw yes. him appear earlier in the year in, I think, a Yahoo article talking about his charitable works. Great. Fine. He made a previous podcast appearance in the summer. While he says he has no plans to return to tennis, what is this in service of? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's image rehabilitation, and it's clearly coordinated. He's done a few podcasts that were clearly uh, a PR calculation. He did this written interview with this weird source that I had never heard of that was very, very fawning. That was clearly part of this larger project to resuscitate his image. And he's an extremely smart and well-connected person, right? He's good at this stuff. And if you wanted to know what the, the level of discourse was at in that episode... One of the hosts said that the most popular religion these days is political correctness and there's no humor. Mm-hmm. It was like boomer humor. It was. And no dis- no disrespect to boomers, but these guys were beating the drum. Justin was running circles around them. Hmm. Right? Like When they say he's smart, yeah, he's smarter than you. <laughs> <laughs> right. He can present things in a way to you that seem mind-blasting and the dude has a lot of experience there's no doubt that he's worked hard for a lot of what he's achieved some of those things are unquestionable right it doesn't then mean that other things get to be cast to the cast to one side Mm -hmm. but here's the thing gimmelstab is gonna be fine he was always gonna be fine provided he stayed out of jail which he would have put himself there anyway Mm -hmm. but this fear for his career he, he's going to be fine. He inherited his father's insurance business. The, the whole incident that kicked this off, he blamed on his father's recent passing. Gimmelstab inherited the family business. He says all he's doing these days is being an insurance guy, running the business, and being a single dad. He says many times during this interview, I'm a single dad. What is conjured when someone says I'm a single dad these days? It's like, well, the wife died, or the wife left me, and I'm put upon to raise this child by myself. I'm doing the hard yards. I'm heroic in being a single dad. That's what the public conception of a single dad is. I don't think that this is accidental. I mean, I don't know his life. You know, I don't know what the home life is like, but there is clearly a a project here that this podcast is more than willing to, to go along with and celebrate. So anyway, if you were wondering what he was up to, that's what it is. He says he has no involvement in the PTPA, Mm -hmm. zero involvement, but he does keep in contact with a few of those guys because they're friends. 
it was interesting for him to say that one of the one of the problems with what's going on in tennis is the multiple conflicts of interest one of them being the example that he used was the austrian opens tournament director and then kind of framing it as well i would be one to know because i was conflicted but then saying well it's not really a bad thing if you can work for these things and if you can get them secure the bag no he was saying like if the rules are set up to allow conflicts you will exploit the conflicts that's a you know that's presented as human nature um, it's a very cynical view of humanity, right? Moving on to another male player. Expl- more exploitation. You may have heard that Bernard Tomic has a new business venture. He has recently coupled up with this uh, adult model, I shall say. And she has started an OnlyFans. And she's advertising Bernard Tomic as being a participant in these adult ventures. Yes. If you if you don't know what OnlyFans is, it is uh, a website where sex workers, models, actors can basically present their work on their own without the aid of a studio and charge people a subscription fee to view their work. It's actually an amazing model, right? It has freed a lot of sex workers and porn actors from the studio system and allowed them to make a, a real income. What we've also seen, and this, I'm not saying that this is the case, but we've seen a lot of people who have money flocking to that system and, in effect, taking money out of those people's yeah. pockets. So now now that it's become successful, you see capital sort of sniffing around. You see some celebrities starting OnlyFans where, you know, they're not really showing you much of anything, but they know people mm. will pay. So in this case, the the young woman is charging $3. It's advertised... Subscribe to my OnlyFans, $3, you'll get to see Tomic do do the business or whatever, right? <laughs> so being the investigative journalist that I am, I spent that $3 to see what was going oh on God. so I could report to you all what is going on with Mr. Tomic. And it turns out it's a bit of a scam. No, it's 100% a scam. Because you pay the $3 and you scroll down the timeline and you see a bit of this a bit of that but Tomic is nowhere to be seen within 24 hours you get a direct message saying here is the video with Bernard it's like three minutes long pay $29.99 to watch it Mm -hmm. see this is the kind of scamming that makes it difficult for independent sex workers and models and actors to make a real living on OnlyFans and it actually it does piss me off because OnlyFans is an honest living. You know, like you are creating a product that people want and they're willing to pay for it. Why not get paid? And so there's another video that you have to pay $29.99 for. Um, upon last checking, there were two of them. The video description says what Tomic allegedly does in those videos. Doesn't seem that it's much. But the way this that thing was like, advertised... That sounds like a value judgment. It sounds like this whole thing... Was a scam. Yeah, I feel scammed. Essentially, it was a scam. Do not spend your three dollars. Is uh, is our advice? Out of nowhere, in the last couple of days, Diana Yastremska has gotten the attention that she so craved when she dipped half her face into the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm-hmm. You remember when Yastremska painted half of her body right down the middle, uh, black, and the other half was her normal alabaster skin tone. There were pictures with her face and then her intertwined hands one hand being 
poorly applied brown makeup, looked very cakey, and the other one her natural white tone. Mm -hmm. And then another one where she's covering her breasts with her hands, and half her body is ebony and ivory. Mm. So it was meant to be uh, a statement about racial unity and all that stuff during the Black Lives Matter movement earlier this year. She was lambasted... And she was forced to take it down, and then she apologized. Well, it wasn't really, it wasn't an apology. It was she like, said, this you, were, didn't, you didn't get it. This was my intention, and I hear you say that this is what you think it is, but I don't think that that's what it is. Yeah. This was an Instagram post gone bad. Mm -hmm. So it was about to be confined only to the small world of tennis, and then out of nowhere, this week, somebody on Twitter shared it again and was like, um, what is this? And it introduced it to a whole nother audience. Black Twitter. Yes. And as of today, that post asking what is this has almost 300,000 <laughs> likes. I don't think there's ever been a more popular tweet about a tennis player outside of a Grand Slam winner. I know, I'm, I'm right? willing to go on record and say that. <gasps> no. That no. this is... Ms. Yastrzemska's big break. She's the WTA Breakthrough Player of the Year. Um, save that for the rap. <laughs> but as you said, this is the attention that she asked for, right? Mm -hmm. Final note before we close. I want to thank you all for choosing us to continue to choose us to listen to the show. Periodically, I go on iTunes and I just search tennis podcasts. And... With doing that recently and also seeing a lot of what's going on on Twitter with the, the just the proliferation of tennis podcasts in the last year, you literally have as many options to listen to people yammer on about tennis as you ever have. Mm -hmm. You're spoiled for choice. You could download anyone and you have chosen to download us. To this point. And we hope we we continue to provide a service that you, you continue to enjoy. Yeah. We, we do not take it for granted. And that is the point of bringing this up right now. So if you want to hear more about OnlyFans scams and <laughs> Half Moon Cookie Instagram posts, you know where to come. You can continue to download our podcast. But in all seriousness, it is uh, extremely flattering and humbling to know that there are people who continue to come back to the well and actually like what we do two more episodes to come i teased on twitter that perhaps we'd only do one year-end rap show where we do what men and women together since it was kind of a truncated season mm -hmm. that did not go over well so we're gonna have to do two separate episodes hopefully we can get those out in the next two weeks so that there is at at least a, a sizable break yeah. before yeah. tennis starts up. Maybe we can start our new season, season seven, in a similar fashion to how we started season six, which I think set us up for a really Ooh. good year, oh. despite all the COVID shenanigans. Mm. We started season six with our Monica Sellis episode, and who knows, we'll see. Okay, we'll work on it. I'm Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR on Twitter. Two L's, two T's. We are at the Body Serve on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find us on Spotify, Overcast, Apple Podcasts, all that stuff. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Okay.